0: Your hair is down. I don't know if I've ever seen you. With, do I always see you with your hair down and I just don't notice it?
1: Uh, Pam, you need to <laughs>
2: above Boom. i
3: Welcome to Weekly Review with Roman. Today it's Friday, April 3rd, 2020. Thanks so much for tuning in. Uh, it's taken me a while to get settled here. I am wearing gloves and a mask and uh, just cleaning up the surfaces as per usual. Thanks so much for tuning in. Perhaps it's your first time listening. Perhaps you are a return listener and appreciate it. Oh, goodness. Okay, we're gonna, um, uh, gonna get to uh, some stories and also we've got an interview coming up around twelve thirty, a pre-recorded interview from the authors of no fascist usa so looking forward to playing that for all you out there i'm gonna take some more time to get uh situated here and in the meantime playing some uh bill withers who sadly passed away today and so we'll be playing some of his music throughout the show and i'll be back in a little bit so please do stay tuned Long, oh, oh, the street. this this world that we're in, where now that there's a virus, and aside from not even you know letting us know about it until too late, it's now that we're dealing with this pandemic. There are are so many people, vulnerable populations, who are really who are high at risk because. We live in this carceral state where folks are imprisoned for not doing anything wrong at all. There are folks without housing. And today, uh, this morning, there was a car, pr- there have been a lot of car protests. There have been car protests outside of ICE facilities across the country. There's also was one outside Mayor Breed here in San Francisco was giving an address this morning and coalition on homelessness and many activists uh, protested outside because the board of supervisors and many people here have been like, hey, there's empty hotels People need to be housed. There should be no reason why people are not being housed right now, and they've been really slow, or the people in positions of power, I should say, have been slow to move to do that. And again, if folks were already housed, this would not be a fucking issue. However, this is this is kind of what's, what's going on, and this, I think, is what my, I have a lot of rage. I think anger is my, I definitely a fear and sadness, and rage is like a big emotion that I have where it's so much of this could be preventable. And instead, it's like, oh, the military still has a lot of fucking money, and they're building missiles and shit, and hospital workers don't have all the materials that they need. And they are working overtime, and they're exhausted, and they're putting themselves and their families at risk. And the money that's going to big corporations to give them bailouts, and it's going into the military. And it's not going to the working people to be able to provide us a way of, okay, well, this can help pay for rent or pay for food or pay for healthcare, folks need to get tested. There's also not a lot of tests going on. It's pretty much uh, a shit show, and if you listen to to this show, it started in late 2013, and this is kind of like the arc of what's been going on, and folks have been protesting and organizing for centuries, pretty much, and this is, of course, this peak, uh, late-stage capitalism, colonialism. This is what happens when folks come in with fucking guns and punishment and don't take care of one another And are fucking idiots because it's also just it's I think there's the cruelty there and there's also just the idiocy don't want to take away from their idiocy as well and making things worse and oh I don't mean to talk myself or any of the listeners into a a depression or anything Uh, it's just that's kind of the truth and that's what I've been feeling a lot and it feels good to at least get it out and the mainstream media corporate media whatever you want to call it of course and now I've heard more and more folks more and more reporters are losing their jobs and journalists are losing their jobs and um, from, you know, actual more independent newspapers and publications, and also recent, this past week, the Examiner, San Francisco Examiner, which is def- definitely a much more progressive paper than the Chronicle, although that's not hard. The Chronicle has, has a history of like defending Nazis and stuff. So, uh, you know, uh, it's low bar. However, the Examiner, some of the reporters there are taking a furlough, it's, it's a bad scene. And when we don't know what's happening or we don't have it's hard to find out what's happening. We don't have actual folks doing the reporting. It's, it makes things a lot worse because then it's hard. But there are, you know, lots of organizing that's still happening. It's not all, it's not like all is lost. And this is also an opportunity where there's a lot of workers who are going on strike. Uh, Amazon workers have gone on strike, whole food workers, which is great because whole food fucking sucks. And I just have so much, Ray, I've, I am not really, I guess I have a lot to say. This is what happens when I'm uh, indoors a lot and not really talking to a lot of folks. It all comes out right now, and I'm going to give myself uh, <laughs> five to ten minutes so I can play the interview, the uh, pre-recorded interview at 12:30. Uh I, I don't go on Facebook too much anymore. I know it's a bad. I mean, a lot of the social media sites and a lot of the sites are there's like surveillance and they do advertising and they're in cahoots with law enforcement. There's a lot of reasons not to go on there. However, it's really important to be able to spread information and connect with folks. So it's it's a difficult it's a difficult situation to navigate. I've had a lot of Facebook statuses in my mind that I've never put out there, and one was going to be like, who are you boycotting? Why are you boycotting it? How is it going for you? And I just, I've just i been boycotting Whole Foods now for a couple years, I think, and there are so many reasons, and I'll go off with a few of them. Every single person I've known, like three or four people who have worked there, they've all had negative it, feelings about it. One person was fired when she tried to unionize her coworkers. That's one thing. Two, um, especially at the Whole Foods around... Uh, the Lake Merritt in Oakland the security guard has uh had like uh, assaulted somebody i have another friend who was banned from that store because he was hungry and shoplifted and i think there's nothing wrong if you're fucking hungry and you need to get food you can totally get it especially from like a big fucking corporation i don't think they're hurting also amazon now owns whole foods so that's bad they also had the, the price gouging where they would just like mark up the food i mean it's already it was expensive but they were like marking it up like totally taking advantage also they're just not good to their workers they can't get health care etc. Um, oh, they also used to have a friend who worked at this, there's an independent cheese shop on 24th Street, and there was a Whole Foods across the street. And the um, the Whole Foods folks would come in and kind of spy on the cheese shop just so they could know what kind of foods to put in. And like, they're really good at putting smaller businesses out of business. In New York, there was this awesome health food store. And then as soon as the Whole Foods at Union Square came in, the smaller store was gone. Um Okay, so those are a few reasons to uh, to boycott Whole Foods, and uh, it's going well for me. It has been, and it's like that thing where it's difficult. I mean, maybe it's a fucking privileged boycott, like, oh, I'm not going to spend a lot of money on overpriced food, blah. However, um, finding alternatives, and again, I'm sure there's issues with Safeway as well, but uh, if you can, support Rainbow. It's a co-op grocery outlet. I don't know why I'm, why am I... Uh, Advertising grocery stores. It's just uh, maybe the ones that to not support. So, anyway, support workers who are going on strike, I would say. Don't cross the picket line. So, that's a positive thing. There's also massive organizing for rent strike and debt strike. And last week on the program, played a pre recorded interview that that Haymarket Books um, put out. And folks were talking about like the um, folks, just like a lot of like the debt collective, and a lot of folks just showing up and asking for or not even asking, just demanding that uh, student loan debt be abolished. And of course, it's, and all, a lot of this, oh my gosh, there's so much. It, the thing that's so frustrating about this moment is that so many things are clear that I think a lot of us already knew, and more and more people are seeing that. But it's, for instance, uh, so one of, uh, so there's been a ban on men who have sex with men, From donating blood. I think a lot of folks know this, some folks don't. And um, they have restricted it. Now, it used to be like if you've had, if you're a man who's had sex with a man, or I've also heard if you're a woman who's had sex with a man who's had sex with a man, uh, you're not allowed to give blood. There's a major blood shortage. Hello. And it's just ridiculous. So now they've like decreased it. So now um, if you haven't had sex with a man in the past, three months it's okay for you to donate blood it's just, it's just fucking stupid restriction it's based in stigma and just like homophobia and it's fucking nonsense biphobia too it's a bunch of fucking nonsense so now they're like oh well now that we really need blood i'm like y'all you know we always needed blood and the idea is just to make things as open and, and as possible and then the fact also is just like they've there's so much fucking money that they could have put i mean it's just it's an imaginary substance it's this imaginary thing and it's so deliberate and so clear right now that they're not giving it to the people. So people need to take back their power. Oh. One great resource that I've been recommending is a mutual aid kit. It's like a live document that folks can edit. And there's so much information there. I haven't even, people are constantly editing it and adding it. And if you go to bit.ly forward slash COVID 19 collective care, and it's the 19, the number, one nine. And there's so much mutual aid info. It's international and nationwide. You can you can search things by region, by particular um, group, or specific need, I should say. And there's just like there's information and like just ways to reach out to people. There's a lot of information there. I haven't even. It's like pages and pages and pages. And you click on a link, and then they bring you to another document where there's so much information that people are sharing. So I really want to recommend that for folks. Odds are, if you're looking for something and ways to help out. Um, either ways to help and or ways to be helped because I feel like a lot of us are in that position where there's things that we can do and also things that we need. There are ways to reach out and connect with folks. Again, bit.ly forward slash COVID-19 collective care. I also do want to share some more upcoming events and things that folks can do um, if you're able to, to reach out. One thing is to connect with folks who are incarcerated. Uh, Black and Pink is an awesome organization that Um, helps folks connect with pen pals and so flying over walls is the prisoner solidarity project that's based here in the bay area and i'm just going to read a little bit from their email and uh, they've canceled all in-person letter writing events for community safety however because prison visitation is shut down and folks are more isolated than usual uh, they still want to get birthday cards sent to folks each month letter writing is one incredible way we have to overcome the isolation intended by the pic join us for this important way to show solidarity with our incarcerated LGBTQ plus and HIV positive community members in California. So they have a link uh, to send birthday cards and also to become pen pals um, and also sending money as well. And they have all this information here is in this email and I would, um, let's see, you can subscribe to their newsletter, that's one thing. You can also, let's see, let's see how I can share this. Ooh information here with folks. If you go to blackandpink.org forward slash penpal dash newsletter, um, you can find more information there. And I will see what I can do to, uh, yeah, that's actually a good place for folks to go. So again, blackandpink.org forward slash penpal dash newsletter. And also if you're not able to go to the post office, there is this company called J.P., which I have a lot of fucking feelings about. I have a lot of feelings about everything if you know me and it's like an email service however they charge people like 35 cents per email which i think is fucking fucked up and ridiculous and also however it's at least another alternative um, if you're not able to mail letter and also you d- can correspond very quickly with with folks who are incarcerated so jpay is another way if you are wanting to contact with folks wanting contact with folks who are incarcerated all right i am going to get the interview set up here and this is an interview I did on Monday. It feels like a very long time ago. It was in the morning. I was a little bit, uh, you know, trying not to be too hard on myself, but uh, could have could have been a better. I'm, I'm not gonna. That's that's all right. I'm just uh, talking here. Gonna find this interview and play it. So this is a really um, important book that's come out, and the the book tour is postponed for the time being. However, it will be back up as soon as things calm down here so I'm going to let's see bring this up here and also just share information about how folks can get the book and I'm also not as prepared this morning as I sometimes I'm a little bit more I I've just been having these uh, it's been a difficult week in a lot of ways so I do want to share before I play the interview a way for folks to check out this book And it is published by City Lights Books, booksellers and publishers. And also during the interview, there's another um, site that's mentioned that supports independent booksellers. And let me just bring this up here. One moment. And... uh, it's mentioned, so please do. There's also so many great book recommendations in the in the interview, and there's also just to talk about grand jury, which I I was thinking I have a second, I have a thing where I second guess myself a lot. So there's we're talking about like grand juries a lot, cause I didn't know so much about it. I do remember that reading about Standing Rock and Chelsea Manning, and it's a lot of there's really just a lot of great information in this uh interview so please do stay tuned the book is called no fascist usa the john brown anti-clan committee and lessons for today's movements it's written by hillary moore and james tracy with a foreword by robin dg kelly it's available at city lights booksellers and publishers and also if you listen to the interview there's another link there for another place for folks can to get it so if you go to citylights.com you can Right in No Fascist USA, the John Brown Anti Klan Committee, and Lessons for Today's Movements, Hillary Moore, James Tracy. You'll be brought to the site, which has the um, a description and reviews and just lots of great praise for the book. Really important and also uplifting in a way that it's there's we all know that there's a lot of things that are wrong with the world, and also this is what this is like a way that folks can. Take information from the past and what we can do to make a better future for everybody. So, uh, this is my first time trying this out. I'm going to now play the uh, video. I haven't edited it at all, so it uh, might be a little bit rough, but uh, yeah, here we go. Great. So how about um, if the two of you would like to introduce yourselves to the listeners?
4: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Cool. Uh, My name is Hillary Moore, and I grew up in California, have spent the last uh, 13 to 15 years or so in different anti-racist struggles, mostly in the climate justice movement, and then later on as a anti-racist political education trainer um, with different groups but mostly Catalyst Project and currently I also support the work of showing up for racial justice. I'm on the leadership team of Surge and now I live in Germany Mm -hmm. and I spend a lot of my time writing about uh, the far right
3: Thanks, Uh, and uh, James, if you wanna share a bit about yourself.
5: Yeah, my name is uh, James Tracy. I was born in Oakland, California, Um, and I've I've been involved with uh, lots of different types of organizing here in the Bay Area. I'm currently teaching in Labor and Community Studies at City College of San Francisco, and a proud member of American Federation of Teachers 2121.
3: Great, thanks. So yeah, I can start off. Um, a few of these questions I'll be asking were have been answered in the book, but I wanted just to start off with Hillary um, asking what in particular inspired you all to, to write this book?
4: Yeah, there's a ton of ways to answer that question. Um, I feel like some of, the, some of the things that we talk about in the book are... Uh, James and I have our own stories, but my part of it is um, that in 2016, in the on-ramp to the presidential election and Trump's campaign, inspiring different white supremacist actions and demonstrations, um, I went with a group of my friends to a counter demonstration at the Sacramento Capitol. Um, The intention for us was just to keep people safe as much as possible, as well as not concede any public space to a white supremacist agenda, and different white supremacist groups were coming together, trying to bank on the fact that President Trump was creating a political space for them in ways that hadn't been seen, at least in my lifetime. Mm -hmm. And um, so we went, and that was the first time that I saw anybody get stabbed, but the fact also that it was white supremacists who stabbed people who were counter-protesting And then moments later, who were brought into safety of the halls of the state capitol by horse-mounted police. Um, That that really rocked me. And I had been spending years as an anti-racist political education trainer talking with people about how racism shows up in our movements, how it divides our movements, how it shows up in our thinking and our culture and how we relate to ourselves and each other, especially as white people. And then, when it comes when it came to the moment of actually uh, rejecting white supremacy in the streets and in the flesh, um I found that other people like me who had been doing that kind of work, didn't have so many tools, didn't have so many models, didn't have so many lessons to draw on. That felt compelling or interesting. And um so I just started to talk with uh, older people, mentors, movement, elders around me and uh, came in contact with Linda Evans and Donna Wilmot and people who had been doing anti-Clan work in the 70s and 80s and through those conversations I just needed to talk with more people and James is a dear close friend and comrade and he's um, a person I like to talk through these kinds of movement questions with and then uh, through that we, we decided to write the book together.
3: So, what did um, collaboration look like for the two of you,
4: James?
5: Uh, yeah, it was. It was a. To me, it was. It was fun. It was a. It was a chance for me to work with Hillary, some like, somebody that I've always just it, enjoyed talking through movement questions and history questions and political questions with, and we're able to just take take that time that we um you know, that we nor- normally take over over a beer uh, or whatnot and uh, make a book out of uh, out of it out of a lot of the same questions that we'd be uh, asking so uh, you know I'm not sure exactly how to describe what uh, you know what writing a book is on a mechanical level when you're writing writing with a uh, w- with a uh, with a co-author mm-hmm. but um, you know you know a lot of it's just sending doing some writing, sending it to the other person, uh, getting feedback, asking each other a lot, uh, a lot of questions, but then also trying to figure out how to make it read well. And I, I, think, I, th- I think we did that together.
3: Yeah. So what were some, for, um, for either of you, whoever would like to, to answer this, what were some of the um, interesting or surprising um, stories that you heard or um, when you were speaking with folks?
4: Um, I mean, some of the stories that stick out the most maybe didn't make it into the book, but mm-hmm. you know, they paint like a particularly uh funny or just like really telling moment of some of the work. And I was talking with Trella Laughlin, who is part of the Austin chapter mm-hmm. of the John Brown Anti-Clan Committee. And in 1982, the Klan was trying to remake itself, but also kind of take up more space, whether that was in uh, like renting school halls or having rallies at capitals and having a public presence and really exercising their First Amendment rights and pushing the bounds of what that means. Mm. And Trella Laughlin was part of, um, yes, the John Brennan Anti-Klan Committee, but they were also in a really interesting coalition with the Black Citizens Task Force, who was doing a lot of uh, worker rights and housing rights, pushing back on gentrification for the Black community in Austin, as well as the Brown Berets, Mm -hmm. who was uh, another community action-based group um, for um, Mexicano people um, and Chicano people. So um, the coalition decided to... Have their own counter-protest, a human rights protest, and gather as many people as they could to sh- really show the numbers of where people's hearts and values were. And I think they had between you know 2,500 or 2,600 people um, really um, putting pressure on, of course, the police who were protecting the Klan. But I think. Uh, a small number of clans showed up, maybe like 40 or so, but they had police protection Mm -hmm. as they marched around the Capitol. And uh, just Mm -hmm. Trello told me a story about how she was on um, like security or surveillance, kind of like keeping everybody safe and monitoring where the route was going and Mm -hmm. helping people decide which routes to take. And she had dressed up as an old lady with a wig and a purse and (laughs) a, a cane and all these different things. And she was trying to like, Fly under the radar with, like, you know, uh, not be observed so much by cops, and
5: mm-hmm.
4: uh, in her choices to dress up in this kind of way, it kept her actually from um, being very fast when the route changed, mm. and mm. talked about having to run multiple blocks to catch up with <laughs> the the crowd um, dressed up as an old lady. So just in how she tells it is very funny and that story t- tells nothing about the book actually but it's one of the things that sticks out for me yeah. <laughs> james do you have one
5: yeah i mean we were we were really honored with the trust of so many folks from john brown anti-clan committee to tell tell their stories many of their stories right so i c- it's really hard for me to pick out just uh you know just one particular story uh, in this patchwork uh, that that is the history of the John Brown Anti-Clan Committee, and there's many stories yet to be yet to be told about them. We didn't yes. get them all. Yes. Uh, but the I think the most moving part to me in doing this is watching the continuity. of Watching most people mm-hmm. in John Brown, uh, at least are the founders of John Brown Anti-Clan Committee, were trying to continue their politics and their values that they learned, supporting the civil rights and the Black freedom uh, struggles of the past. They had to apply them and make uh, some very sharp choices in the late 70s when they uh, when political prisoners were reaching out to them and asking for their solidarity in exposing clan infiltration into the uh, you know into the prison system where many uh, many former uh, or sorry, many not former but many radical activists were especially <laughs> black activists. Mm -hmm. But then also watching as the John Brown anti-Klan committee uh, starts to wind down is watching people go into uh, the anti-AIDS movement, uh, dedicating themselves to, um, you know, rededicating themselves towards prison abolitionism, Mm -hmm. things like that. So, you know, it's to me, this story is taken a whole of people never, uh, never really leaving the movement, maybe adapting the way that they engage, maybe reassessing their tactics, but the story this is this is really the story of people of staying true to their uh, their values over many decades.
3: Yes, yes. What I appreciated in the book was um, the history that's presented that I think many of us who are grew up in this country certainly was not taught in a lot of history classes and was kind of glossed over in terms of the groups that you're talking about um, forming and Sorry, I need to pause for a second.
6: Uh,
5: Sorry about that. uh, Uh, Now we can see all your notes. Oh. (laughs) Uh,
3: Oh, okay. Um, Yeah, so I've taken some notes about the, um, like, the introduction to the book, and, like, the, something that also, that I hadn't known about was the um, decolonization efforts around the world, so perhaps I'm jumping around a little bit here, but I really appreciated that part in the book, talking about how in, like, the 60s and 70s, um, the vast movements that were, like, different nations getting independence that were happening, Mm -hmm. So I appreciated that kind of added to the the narrative in a really informative way that I think for those of us who weren't around at the time um, or even maybe people who maybe were around at the time didn't necessarily know what was happening possibly. So I feel like that really provided a helpful context as to what also
5: those privileges still exi- existed in every way. But in the 80s we have groups like white airing resistance and many others that are actually becoming revolutionary and wanting to overthrow the United States, so their <laughs> loyalty to to the United States was even in question. That created moments where um, they even went too far for the um, you know for the for the existing existing state. And wow. I think that's a really interesting dynamic to watch for today. I can't tell you exactly how that's playing out in today's world, mm-hmm. uh, but I think that that's, that as the far far right uh, grapples with comes up with their strategies for grappling with this this crisis and whatever is going to happen in november with the presidential uh, election we're going to have, have to really watch watch that point of tension uh with uh, with some particular attention
3: mm. wow yeah that makes me think about there's um Forget the name of the, the person but the idea of like a three-way fight where it's between like the state and then the, the left and the right that's very, like an oversimplification of it certainly but it's that's what that makes me think of the idea yeah
5: our friend matthew who i just referenced was is one of the, one of the prime uh, authors between the uh, around the three-way fight theories oh great uh, they're, they're they're pretty uh pr- pretty important contributions
3: yes yes and do you mind sharing the name of the book again?
5: Insurgent Supremacist. Okay. It's uh, somewhere in here, but it's uh, yeah, it's on PM PM Press. Just came, mm-hmm. came out about eighteen months ago. It's very good. Great, thank you. Thanks. So, let's see. Okay.
3: So I guess can, uh, another question I have is um, so. So just uh, letting it kind of everything land a bit. Um, For sure. What were some uh, challenges that, um, Hillary, that you and and James uh, found while putting the book together?
4: Um, that's a good question. I mean... James spoke to this a little bit earlier. Um, We both are first and foremost organizers and people who are in movement and organize our life around movements. Um, And then to take up the important task also of writing about movements and with movements, um, you're kind of wearing multiple hats at the same time. Mm -hmm. So, at least for me, and James and I would talk about this on our regular calls, too, but at least for me, um, you know, I'm 35 years old, and so I was not even born yet, and so there's a whole bunch of learning I have to do. Of course, the interviews we did with the folks and Um, reading their newspapers, they were quite prolific in their writing and essays and articles and movement conversations. And so in that way, it was really easy to kind of know what they were thinking and what positions they were taking. um, What is it that they were advocating for? That's like really obvious and apparent um, in their newspaper, which can also be you can read almost all of them mm. if you go to freedomarchives.org, which oh. Freedom Archives exists in San Francisco at Valencia and 16th. Oh, cool. Okay. And it's just a treasure chest. It's a treasure chest of uh, uh, movement resources of the John Brand anti clan Committee for sure, but actually of the movements they were supporting with, coordinating with, inspired by. So I would just really, really recommend checking out Freedom Archives, donating to them, looking at the resources um, available. It's a a treasure chest, especially for any nerds out there who likes to get into movement history. Definitely. But the point, too, is just that being an activist and organizer today, I have opinions based on my context and time in history right now. Mm -hmm. And so how to have a little bit of space as I read things from people that were taking really strident positions in the 70s and 80s and saying like, here's the dividing line. Are you gonna cross it or are you not? And I think the politic and the principle of that is very important. And that was a through line of the organization. And I really appreciate how the organization also kept that political principle alive of, we need to challenge white supremacy in all of its forms and this is what it can look like, especially as we coordinate with movements for self-determination. And then they shifted their tactics over time about who who could they reach? What other white people could they bring in? What are the various kinds of ways that you can mobilize against the clan or clan like groups in ways where different kinds of people can uh, participate? And yeah, I mean, That's the the task of somebody who, for somebody who writes about history is like you have your own opinions about what worked or what didn't work. Mm -hmm. And when you are writing a book, you kind of have to like carve out only the unnecessary stuff, but also let the reader have the chance to make their own assessments about what worked and what didn't work. So it's like a, it it was felt fine tooth comb, comb comby, you know, it was like a bit surgical of what you keep in and what you you know, unfortunately, have to choose to let other people find in their own research.
5: Right, right. Yeah, I think, and one of the biggest challenges is that no two comrades ever remember the same protest the same way. Mm. And you know, and you can interview one person about the exact same, uh, same protest or action or argument, and everyone's going to have a slightly different takes on it. So. I think that's where people who do movement history can, you know, you know, can contribute a lot of value is just helping people sift through that, ign- at, ign- at the same, finding what the truth is wherever it leads, while still really being respectful and kind towards the uh, the people who are uh, sharing their histories with you. Uh, you know, the you know, human beings have remarkably shitty memories, and uh, we 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 you know even an hour from now if somebody uh, asked asked each of us what what was the most important thing that you took away from that conversation you just had online we would all have very th- uh we would all have very different memories about what was said yes. what was important and what was left out and that's okay but it's challenging from a writing perspective also from a writing perspective we have enormous power right we're collecting people's stories we're taking people's trust, on um a lot of this isn't just political but it's also stories about people that they uh that di- you know, different movement participants had relationships with one another friendships that um you know long-lasting friendships broken friendships marriages uh mm-hmm. controversies debates and you know as as authors we we make choices we have the power to decide hey this is um, this is important enough to talk about and this is not important uh, to put into the book uh, or to put in the background. So just really taking that responsibility very seriously, I think, is is always a challenge whenever you write, write, write the things. You constantly have to give uh, gut checks. Yes. And
3: something that you mentioned is in terms of, like, the personal relationships and, you know, about, like, the infiltration that COINTELPRO did during the 60s, for instance, and afterwards. And I was curious about how to say this exactly, but in terms of like the trauma that activists face, just in terms of like living their lives and also showing up. And I was curious if there were any um, like pieces of wisdom or hints that you, um, that either of you could share in terms of how activists continue to move through and deal with the, the violence and the overwhelming, Uh, circumstances uh, that uh, this work requires?
4: That's a really important question. Um, I wish that we were able to have uh, so many more intergenerational conversations about that very thing. I think that's really important. Um, In some ways, depending on your perspective, uh, COINTELPRO and the massive surveillance um, infiltration as well as like assassination Mm -hmm. of the u.s government against um, movements that were posing a threat to them so for black liberation puerto rican independence just movements that were inspiring different ideas about what would be possible for a different society um the aftermath of some of that are the conditions in which gave way to the John Brown anti clan committee. People, many of the leaders that were targeted the most heavily were perhaps incarcerated or underground or in prison. And like you said earlier, um, some of those leaders were then in the late 70s calling out the fact that the Klan had adopted the strategy to use their positions of power within the prison system to harass those same leaders. And so the John Brand anti-Klan committee was formed in response to the fact that reporters, the fact that the judicial system, the fact that mainstream society was not responding to the Klan's presence in US institutions, especially prisons and police. And so um, in some ways, right, the organization was emerged out of the aftermath of that kind of trauma and I think, too, that in some ways to do confrontation work against the Klan is a kind of trauma work. You are constantly putting yourself in in between and buffering between some of the harshest expressions of our society. And, I mean, some of the work that the John Brand anti klan Committee did, too, especially supporting uh, movements for self-determination... Um, a number of them were called into grand juries as the government was trying to piece together trials um, to gain more information, but ultimately put more activists under in, in imprisonment. And they they had a very quick response to resist those grand juries that were called, and they practiced an ethic called non-cooperation. Mm-hmm. And they came from movements that were very well practiced in knowing what that tactic from the government was trying to do and so their first immediate response was to go very public was to politicize their role their position they knew especially as white people that the state was applying pressure to them thinking that they would give in they would cave in maybe their relationships weren't so tightly connected to or um, respectful of the movements that they were coordinating with people of color movements. And so they very much knew, like, as white people, one particular important thing we can do right now is to just double down on our politics Mm -hmm. of solidarity, of cooperation, of non-cooperation with the U.S. government and the grand jury, and just having each other's back, really connecting with other people who were resisting grand juries. And I think these different moments within the you know, the life of the organization, kind of sense, um, like, concretized something for people, not everybody, of course, but like James had said earlier, people have really built their lives, some of them together, you know, Mm -hmm. either having kids together, or just lifelong friends or comrades, and maybe they do or don't live in the same place, but you kind of keep in touch and are, are aware, and I think It also comes from a political ethic of doing prisoner support work. So constantly keeping uh, people on the inside aware of um, what's happening on the outside, trying to apply the right legal pressure to get their needs met. Like the the ethic of like, you don't leave anybody behind and Mm -hmm. you stay connected and you do what you can to help people feel connected and feel relevant. I mean, there's, quite a number of uh, political prisoners that are still in decades, decades later, and a number of the people in John Brown, as well as the whole milieu around them, really are well practiced in um, really staying connected and trying still to this day, decades later, get people out, get our people out, they went in for political reasons, whether or not you agree with it, or whatever, that's a whole different argument, but there's something to the, the fact of you just don't leave your people behind. And what does it take to organize a mass movement to keep keep us all together?
5: Mm-hmm. Something, oh, go ahead. Oh, uh, yeah, so I'm going to step out a little bit out of what's, what's, what's in the book and drawing from my own personal experience as somebody who has been in organizations that have very clearly been disrupted at points is that, you know, somebody who, who is out to disrupt your work uh you know they're they're normally quite smart and socially and socially intelligent they can uh they can figure out figure out what your weakness is and move to exploit it so if your organization has a problem with centralized leadership around the one strong leader right and that's creating problems they're going to exploit that if you're if your organization does not have solid ways of dealing with racism and sexism and toxic masculinity, the disruptor is going to uh, exploit that. So uh, that sounds very doom and gloom, but one of the best ways that we can pr- protect ourselves from, uh, from future COINTELPRO stuff is by being proactive around working on these issues and having very good protocols, having organizational discipline that means that every time a comrade pisses you off, or you have an ideological difference with that you don't take to Facebook or Twitter to mm-hmm. expose it uh, to all, you know, to all the, to all the world. Um, but, you know, certainly just underlining the, um, the importance of solidarity, especially with comrades that we have disagreements with. Right. Um, when, uh, you know, when the state cracked down on some former John Brown anti clan committee uh, members for radical activities, they oftentimes found themselves in the same federal prison as people who were uh, you know who were deeply committed to the nonviolent tradition. right. Mm-hmm. So if they come for you in the morning, they'll be back for us at night. doesn't mean that we shouldn't have debates around violence, nonviolence tactics, strategies, ethics, um, things like that, but it, it starts by standing up for one another no matter what. And holding our um, holding our disagreements for uh, places where we can we could have 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 them out in a um, in a principled and uh, non-public kind of way. Mm. Thank you, um, Hillary.
3: You mentioned um, going back. Uh, you mentioned grand juries, and I was hoping you could just speak a little bit about that for those of us who are not as familiar with what that entails.
4: Sure. Um, There is a really good website. Let me find it really quick. Uh, I think it's like just Mm -hmm. grandjuryresistance.org. It has a lot of lovely information of just like what is a grand jury, history of a grand jury, recent grand juries, educational materials. I highly recommend checking that out. Um, It also links to different movements who yeah, are currently – um, battling such repression, and I mean the summary of it is is a grand jury um, is a judicial order, and being called for a grand jury means that you um, must appear in a court, but mm-hmm. it is a court without a judge and it is a court without a jury and it is no there is a jury, but lawyer. So you are just asked questions. Um, without a lot of support or representation. And the whole point is to gather information to build a federal case later on. And um, you can resist, you can choose to not cooperate, you can uh, not participate in the grand jury, and that means 18 months in jail or the duration of the grand jury. Mm. So in many ways, for movements, it's an important um, piece to understand that, um, one, what is it to not tell on your friends or not give information unwillingly, especially, um, to the government that is like trying to build a case against someone or people. Um, but also to know that it is also a strategy that can kind of freeze or intimidate movements and activities. And so if a a fair number of people are called and say those people um, choose to practice non-cooperation, effectively people are held then in prison or jail for that period of time, which that can halt political activity itself. Like what they were doing, of course, but then attention really goes into supporting those folks. Mm-hmm. So it can it can really dramatically shift and change the uh, the political terrain of an organization or a region quite quickly. Thank you.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: Could I add something to the
5: grand jury bit? Of course. Uh, the grand jury, you know, uh, remember that grand juries are always fishing expeditions by the state. So, uh, so may you know. Certainly as an organizer, as an activist, as a citizen, uh, the person being investigated by, uh, you know, you know, by the grand jury, by the state may or may not have done something that, that you intensely disagree with, right? On all levels, but it's not about that individual deed. It's about the fact that the, uh, the, that the state is going on a fishing expedition to try to get information on the entire state of dissent Mm. Uh, in society at that at that time, so giving up uh, giving up in- information against one can also be inadvertently giving up information against many.
6: I see.
3: Thanks for adding that. <sighs> Lots of information. And I, yeah, I appreciate the both of you for sharing so much because I think a lot of this is just a lot of information that one really has to find through, you know, through word of mouth and through personal connections because it's not, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it's not uh, necessarily easy to find unless you go out looking for it.
4: Mm-hmm. But there's also, you know, relevant cases today. Standing Rock in Charlottesville or Chelsea Manning. Mm -hmm. These are all folks and events that have experienced and are either currently going through or they're in the next process of grand juries. Mm
1: -hmm. And,
4: you know, we'll see posts, we'll see encouragement and support for, you know, Chelsea Manning and all these people. Um, And so I think putting it in a larger context of the history of grand juries, how they've been used to try to divide movements. It's just a really, really important moment that can go as well as it can in terms of connecting other movements, right? Like if you are in Charlottesville and all of a sudden there's a grand jury trying to get information about what you were doing in Charlottesville, well that has the ability to connect you to the folks in Standing Rock. That has the ability to connect you back to the Puerto Rican independence movement that was fighting the grand juries in the 60s and the 50s. And that has the ability to put you within a longer arc of history mm-hmm. of movements who have been doing this for a long time. So absolutely, I feel the weight of you know, how tricky this information is and how it is and isn't available at the same time and then there's also something quite hopeful, too, about like, well, when you start to tap into that history, you, it so quickly becomes apparent that we're not alone, you know, right. and that we can expect these tactics to happen perhaps again and again, mm-hmm. but we're not alone and we get to build off of what each other has learned.
3: Yes, I did find that it's, it is helpful in terms of like reading the the history
4: and just- especially in current movements and stuff. I know that there are a number of authors and I can look it up uh, who are writing more specifically about the contours of white supremacist and white power movements. Mm-hmm. Um, and a really good book um, called bring the war home by mm-hmm. Kathleen Belew. Um It came out maybe like a year or more ago. And she talks about the same political moment that the John Brown anti clan Committee do, was working in, but she really dives into the white supremacist movement that often I think that the John Brown crew was responding to. Mm-hmm. And she talks about how um, how the Vietnam War really radicalized some aspects, some people, some veterans, and that idea or that context of um basically feeling betrayed uh, in within the Vietnam war and the lack of support in coming home mm. and the idea that if we had more time more resources we could have won and then coming home and then basically being shunned like it was very a well-known common sense thing that the feeling was that we should not have been there and that we lost and that it was a bad thing for the country Mm-hmm. And so those conditions radicalizing some into what more white supremacist mm. action and also how that played into militarizing different white supremacist action, like some of those skills translating into um, how how they militarized themselves and which weapons they chose and how they did their actions and activities. Anyways, the book is super well researched, highly detailed. And I think she does go a lot more into gender and how that plays into different ideas about culture. And especially within the U.S., there's a particular flavor of a kind of militarized masculinity that,
6: mm-hmm.
4: you know, of course, of course is in these white supremacist movements. But is also a very commonly held, you know, uh, traditional ideas of what masculinity is, even within narratives around the coronavirus you know we're going to go to battle against the coronavirus we're yeah. going to win against coronavirus you know like yeah. these ideas are very mainstream as well mm-hmm. yeah thank you
5: Let, mm-hmm. let's complicate that question a little bit uh, certainly neither one of us are are experts on this but uh, and we know that a certain you know the dominant branch of white supremacy of organized far white uh, far right white supremacy is uh, you know is masculinist and very you know very male supremacist, but it's not always that way, right? We've we've seen uh, we've we've seen organizations that have experimented with feminist takes on organized white supremacy. Hmm. We occasionally uh, occasionally see today uh, you know far right organizations even embracing uh, LGBT uh uh members and you know tokenizing them in my opinion but certainly <laughs> not having such a strong uh a, a strong line on it as past white supremacist groups might uh might might have. They're 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 adapting, but what holds them all in, in common is the belief in the supremacy of the white race. Mm-hmm. I see. Yes. Take a breath. yeah uh,
3: yeah there's, there's a lot there's a lot there um yeah so um I thought we could also just maybe is we probably can start wrapping up a little bit because I know we're approaching an hour is there anything else that we haven't quite talked about yet um that you that either of you wanted to to share either from your experience of writing the book or other any piece of information you wanted to share with listeners?
4: Um. Sure. I think one of the most important pieces about the John Brown Anti Klan Committee, which made it so compelling, which made it so am- me as an organizer and an activist, but also what kept me in the writing process for a few years in, in piecing together this history, was the fact that um, the John Brown Anti Klan Committee came from the politics of really coordinating with and uplifting the movements that are most impacted by systems of oppression. And I feel like there's all kinds of questions that go into, okay, who is that and how is that? But I think what the most important piece is is what movements are calling for a world, are envisioning a world where everybody has freedom, where everybody has more choice, where there's room in a different way of living and being together. And then what's actually going to be strategic. Those things together, I think were part of the spirit of the John Brennan Anti-Can Committee. You know, they came out of a call based on uh, movements for self-determination saying, hey, we need a bit of a buffer. We need a bit of support in the, these areas. And we need more white people in on these movements. Like, mm. join in, throw in, get in here. Yes. And I feel like to have an organization that is built around the political principle of leadership from below or leadership from frontline communities, mm-hmm. I feel like is a very important ethic, it's a very important principle that we, even if we're not gonna reorganize our organizations, or maybe there's some people who are starting organizations now,
6: mm-hmm.
4: but just to like let that be an organizing principle, let that right. be at the center of what it is that we're actually trying to do. and. For that, I think the John Brennan Science Committee is a really important example.
5: Yeah, well, I hope that your listeners are taking this very uh, interesting time that we live in. If if they're lucky enough to be at home and be safe and be uh, during this uh, the, uh, during this quarantine times, to be using this time to really think about how we're going to win, right? Yeah. Think ab- think about how we are going to transform uh, transform this world to one that. With radical equality that is uh, that finally sweeps away all this white supremacist stuff. So somebody 50 years from now isn't writing, you know, isn't writing the exact same book only about a different mm-hmm. uh, different organization, uh, pulling the exact same lessons. It's time to transform. Uh, but within that, uh, history is important in writing movement history. is a uh, It's a gift. Uh, it's a gift that, that you give to people who are uh, doing doing the work of, um, of organizing to organizing today. So now is a really good time if you're home and you have Internet access to finally delve into those uh, those hidden histories that you've always wondered about, whether your great grandmother was a wobbly or uh, wondering about it, the impacts of the anti-nuclear movement on contemporary direct action whatever it is that you're curious about do that research, uh, dur- during, this time. Um, I'm super excited, um, about the, not only about the potentials that, that, that we, that we have during this horrible, this horrible time to imagine new worlds, but also two, two, uh, book related books to ours that are coming out in a few months. Mm-hmm. Uh, one is free the land about the Republican new Africa by Ed Onassie. Mm-hmm. Um, the Republic of New Africa was one of John Brown, anti-Klan committee's uh, major collaborators, and I'm so excited for this book, and certainly Co-Conspirators for Justice by Susan Reverby uh, about Alan Berkman, uh, 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 somebody who spent some time in John Brown. I think that's really going to, uh, taken together, these three books are really going to ignite a conversation uh, about this period of time and draw some lessons for today. Great. Well, thank
3: you so much. And for folks who would like to order a copy of No Fascist USA, the John Brown anti clan Committee and Lessons for Today's Movements, it's available at citylights.com. And also, any other places folks can order the book?
5: Yeah, I'm loving Bookshop right now. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, the uh, book, bookshop.com is a new initiative to that is uh, – designed to support independent publishers and bookstores um uh, our uh you know our publisher city lights has a page on it you can buy it at a discount from from there and the ebook if uh you don't want to touch anything which is completely understandable to uh th- th- these days and uh, you know bookshop has this great uh, theory that if they even divert i think it was like two percent of the business away from amazon it's going to completely bolster independent awesome. publishers and booksellers so uh yeah check out bookshop.com or city Lights, and uh, we really hope to see y'all on on the road because oh, when yes. this crisis when this crisis uh abates we're gonna uh we're we're gonna go back on tour like we were planning on being, being excellent
3: fun. excellent well i look forward to to sharing that information as well when that when that happens
5: yeah cool.
4: thank cool. you so much for having thank us you on.
3: Thank you. Thank you, Hillary, Thank you, James. Really appreciate you taking the time to share your work and to um, share some lessons from this book, and I hope that many folks get a chance to, to read it. Yeah, when, Thank when you. When is it going to air? Uh, be, I'll be playing this live on uh, Friday, so I can send you both the, the link.
5: Oh, cool. Friday will be a big day for our podcast. <laughs> awesome. Yes. Cool. All right. Thanks nice. again so much. All right. Thanks. All right. Bye. Bye.
3: Thanks so much for tuning in. Again, you can find that book at uh, the City Lights website. I'm going to play some more music. Uh, my mask just fell off. And uh, from Bill Withers. And we'll be back uh, to wrap up the show in a little bit. Stay tuned.
2: Ain't no sunshine when she's gone. It's not warm when she's away. this house just ain't no home. time she goes away, I know, 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 I she goes away Anytime she goes away
7: Most of us at some point in our lives have somebody that means more to us than anybody else has ever meant before or will ever mean again. Sometimes it's a long-legged lady if you're a man or some tall, very smooth man if you're a woman. And in some odd cases they get kind of crossed up, we won't <laughs> talk about those. But in my case, I learned how to really love somebody from not a very pretty lady, not at that point in their life, not Uh, sexy at all, but just a nice old lady who used some very nice old gnarled hands to make life kind of nice for me at that time when I really needed somebody. And it wasn't after I got older and started to look around for things, it was before I even knew what I was looking for. And probably since I consider myself somebody who writes primarily, out of all the uh, things that I might have written, my favorite thing that I've written has, has to be about this favorite old lady of mine. Mm -hmm.
2: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Grandma's hand Clapped in church on Sunday morning Grandma's hand Played a tambourine so well Grandma's hands used to issue out a warning She'd say, Billy, don't you run so fast Might fall on a piece of glass Might be snakes there in that grass Grandma's hand. I Look alone with mother Grandma's hands Used to ache sometimes And swell, whoa Grandma's hands Used to lift her face And tell her she'd say Baby grandma understands That you really love that band Put yourself in Jesus' hands Grandma's hands hand me a piece of candy Grandma's hands Pick me up each time I fail Oh, Grandma's hands Boy, they really came in handy She'd say, Matty, don't you whip that boy What you wanna spank him for He didn't drop no apple core But I don't have Grandma anymore If I get to heaven, I'll look for Grandma's
3: hands. Thank you. All right, and welcome back. That was Bill Withers with Grandma's Hands. I'm going to go over a few other items that folks can participate in if you're interested. This is from the Tenderloin Museum Shelter in Place call for submissions. Be part of a digital group show depicting life under lockdown April 1st. To view or tune in, there's the TLM Instagram at Tenderloin Museum, Shelter in Place Gallery Instagram at Shelter in Place TLM. You can follow them on Twitter at TLMuseumSF or Facebook at Tenderloin Museum. So, yes, they have a gallery show called Shelter in Place. Uh, to submit, you can email work to K Conry, and that's K C O N R Y at Museum.org. Submissions will be accepted on a rolling basis with the opportunity to become part of the Tenderloin Museum's online archive and civic scene. When selected, artists will be notified via email. They have submission guidelines and uh, up to six works of art that were produced during lockdown, all mediums welcome a description of the artwork, what's the medium, what compelled you to make it, what does it say about your personal experience during lockdown, an artist bio, Venmo or cash app handle which is optional, and Instagram handle or other relevant social media. Okay. And I am wearing these gloves right now, so it's a little bit difficult for me to navigate. Uh so going a little bit slower than usual. Um, also I wanted to share some oh this is a re- okay, World Can't Wait, which is another org uh it's so old it has my uh, the emails i get from them have my uh old name on it oh goodness okay uh so there's a, a three days action hashtag free them all that begins it's from april 2nd to april 4th and it's calling on us to carry out individual autonomous actions while practicing social distancing following the general cdc guidelines to demand that ice release everyone from detention now There's a facebook event let me click on that and provide the link for folks who are able to check out facebook and it's a hashtag free them all call to action hosted by close the camps nyc and three others so lots of info there and going back here action suggested but not limited to banner drops hanging banners or signs on your windows doors cars etc chalking on public sidewalks, jogging paths, other visible areas, projections, other forms of beautification, song, music, dance, standing outside with banners and signs, alone or at a safe distance of six feet from others. Tens of thousands of immigrants remain in ICE detention in the midst of the COVID-19 global health crisis. Even before the pandemic, their lives were at risk because they lack access to adequate medical care or sanitary facilities. Now they face a pandemic, and the increasing risk of lockdown which would prevent anyone from being freed. We are also calling on Governor Cuomo to use his emergency powers to free everyone detained in the state of New York as well as all other governors to do the same in their own states. This is an emergency. Lives are at stake. Blanket the city with banners, signs, and all forms of art to demand an end to ICE's concentration camps. You can send photos, videos, or other media of your actions. Uh, DM the, oh yeah, DM uh, Close the Camp's Facebook page or email info at closethecampsnyc.com. So wanting to share that with folks. And yes, there's lots of... Also wanted to uh, share from the New York City Anti-Violence Project, remembering Lorena Borjas. I'll read a little bit about Lorena. On Monday, on the eve of Transgender Day of Visibility, our community lost a cherished member of our family Lorena Borjas, affectionately known as the mother of the trans-Latinx community in Queens, passed away due to COVID-19 complications. This news is devastating, and AVP mourns with our community as we honor the life of Lorena Borjas. For over three decades, Lorena worked to support LGBTQ Latinx community, especially fighting for trans, immigrant, and sex worker rights. She worked to support LGBTQ Latinx community, oftentimes providing community members with money, food, housing, metro cards, and cell phones. Lorena was a critical partner for AVP for more than a decade. She pushed us to make sure AVP was meeting the needs of those most in need in our community and brought dozens upon dozens of Latinx trans women to AVP for support, resources, and counseling and legal services. She was relentless a tireless advocate sometimes coming into avp's offices multiple times a day to ensure the needs of her community were met many of avp's staff knew lorena as a friend mentor mother and source of inspiration avp staff member jj jones shared the following reflection during some of the most challenging and lowest times of my life lorena and i bonded over or shared migrant and trans identities lorena has been a beacon of not only hope but an inspiration to so many others in our community. I will always keep the memories of the many hugs we shared, the many times we shared space, while teaching our community the importance of sexual health in queer, trans, and GNC bodies, centering black, TGNC liberation, abolition, immigrant, migrant rights, just to name a few. We lost a comrade, a respected advocate, and a true revolutionary. Lorena's advocacy brought her countless awards and recognitions, including AVP's Community Heroes Award in 2018. In recognition of her contributions to our community, AVP had planned to profile her in our 40th anniversary Profiles of Changemakers for her long-standing contributions to the queer anti-violence movement and our work at AVP. Before her death, Lorena set up an emergency fund for the transgender community, particularly sex workers, who have found themselves without income during this current economic crisis. To this end, Lorena was committed to her community and was finding ways to give back. We ask that if you're able, (sighs) you help to ensure her work continues by contributing any amount to her fund. Her legacy continues. And they provide a link to uh, Lorena's emergency fund. And it's a GoFundMe, uh, transgender emergency fund 101. So folks can if you want to check that out, you can do so. <sighs> so I'm going to wrap up the show here. Um there's definitely a lot more action items that folks can take and if you're interested in learning more, follow me on Twitter. I do mostly retweeting uh, other organizations and individuals. You can follow me at ROMANRIMER sharing a lot of information like such as the information that I've shared today on the show just about word of mouth, spreading Lots of resources for folks, and I know there's uh, it's for myself easy to feel depressed and hopeless. And also, there are so many opportunities for folks, no matter what you're going through, if you're able to help and or be helped. So, wanting to put that out there, and I know easier said than done. Easy for me to to talk, and you know, sometimes it's difficult to put that into action. So, just putting that out there into the universe that um, there are ways for us to help one another and show up. Okay, so yes, follow me on Twitter, R-O-M-A-N-R-I-M-E-R. Um, eh, not so much back on Facebook, so I won't even, not much going on there. And please do support Mutiny Radio. We are uh, constantly in a financial situation here where we pay dues to pay the rent, and there are very few spaces left in San Francisco for art and free speech and independent work. So I do want to uh, promote sending some funds to the station, you can do so if you go to mutinyradio.fm. I believe we have a GoFundMe up. You can also send donations to via through Venmo. I believe it's mutiny radio, I believe. And also if you want to support this show in particular, that would be super helpful. Still collecting funds to cover the dues. You can find the Patreon at patreon.com forward slash weeklyrev or donate directly at Venmo, R-O-M-A-N dash R-I-M-E-R. I I greatly appreciate contributions of any amount. I really appreciate it. So we're going to be back again next week as far as I know. Who knows? That's the plan. So thanks again for tuning in. There's lots of great shows here at Mutiny Radio, so please do check out our site, mutinyradio.fm. Also, the archives are up. Got the last maybe five-ish years of shows from the station up as well. So please do check out the archives as well. Lots of great folks have come through. And I believe that's it. So thanks again so much for tuning in. Big thanks to Hillary and James for uh, spending the time to speak about their book. Again, you can find it at citylights.com. And again, the title is No Fascist USA, the John Brown Anti-Clan Committee and Lessons for Today's Movements. So I'm going to play one more Bill Withers song. Um, probably, I mean, ugh, I, it's hard to, I, I don't really rank songs at all, but this one would probably be the one that's, I think, dearest of the ones that I know because I, uh, yeah, closest to my heart. So I'm going to play this one. And uh, let's uh, play a live version and see, see about that. And uh, yeah, thanks so much for tuning in. I think that's about it. And we'll be back next week. Have a great week, everybody.
1: It's your boy CFO here, here to let you know that the fifth annual Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival is March 1st through 7th, 2020, with special podcasts and comedy shows 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. all week. Get your tickets now on Eventbrite. Just search Mutiny Radio and get ready for 76 comics from all over the U.S., coming for 66 programs in seven days all here at 2781 21st Street in the heart of the mission or if you can't be with us listen live or podcast from anywhere in the world at www.mutinyradio.fm join us march 1st to 7th for these amazing events what kind of a future Law Tigers, we fight for motorcyclists. We're not just motorcycle lawyers, we're part of the riding community. Law Tigers watches over riders. If you're injured in a motorcycle accident, we'll help you get your motorcycle repaired or replaced and assist you with your damaged gear, too. We're by your side every step of the way. With the Law Tigers, you never ride alone. If you're injured in a motorcycle accident, call 1-800-LAW-TIGERS or visit us on the web at lawtigers.com. The Law Tigers. California's <laughs> motorcycle lawyer. Richard Davis, here's Law Firm, Circle, Suite 300, Sacramento, California, 95834. LGbtQ friendly to sports vinyl to gutter punk Mutiny Radio. FM has the best programming the internet ocean has to offer you I'd bet my peg leg on it or I ain't scurvy shit face McRat. <laughs>
0: Go to monkeybrains.net and sign up today.
1: Asiento. Asiento. Take a seat at Asiento on 21st and Bryant. Meet friends for a drink, have delicious tapas, and a relaxed community atmosphere.
5: wednesday march 4th 9 to 11 p.m with lgbtq plus and allied comics so come out to 3158 mission street at caesar chavez san francisco it's open every day at 2 p.m with an incredible back patio el rio
7: is your dive